This week's episode of the Lone Star Outdoors Show proudly brought to you by Kent Cartridge and Fast Steel 2.0. Back when uh, I first got into serious waterfowling in college, Kent Cartridge made the most affordable premium load on the market. They are still doing the exact same thing with Fast Steel 2.0. It's the evolution of the OG of premium waterfowl loads and Fast Steel. Uh, but if you want a hard-hitting waterfowl load that doesn't leave you chasing cripples but doesn't hurt the pocketbook at the same time, check out Kent's Fast Steel 2.0, available in all of your favorite shot sizes. It's widely available at Cabela's, Bass Pro, Shields, you name it. And uh, you can find their entire dealer list at kentcartridge.com. She's a star and she shines. Lord knows why. Good morning, good morning. With Charlie Robinson kicking things off for us on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith here with you as always. Thank you so much for sharing a part of your week with me as we are talking hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies. We've got a great show lined up for you today, one that is quite seasonal with dove season fast approaching. Gosh, I can't believe it. September 1st will be here before we know it. I'm excited. Bell knows something's abreast because we've been doing a little more training than usual. And by that, I mean, we've been doing some training at all <laughs> because once we had kids, that was like the first thing that stopped was actually working with Bell on a regular basis. But for an 11 year old lab, it's pretty much like riding a bike. So she's got it under control. Uh, and the kids, the kids are ecstatic. They know that they'll be MIA from the public education system on Wednesday, September 1st, much to their mother's uh, chagrin, but I don't care. And it's a, a family tradition. So hope you guys are as pumped up about dove season as I am. And keeping that in mind, um, that's what we're going to get into today is all things dove and shotgunning. I've got two great guests lined up for you. So you know what to do. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up Stanley thermos that granddaddy passed down years ago because we're ready to rock and roll. And off the top, we'll be joined by Texas Parks and Wildlife Dove Program Leader. I think his title might include some other species, but Owen Fitzsimmons will be here to discuss all things dove. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about morning dove, white-winged dove, their biology, their you know reproduction habits, and... What really got me thinking about this was this pair of dove that have been nesting on my patio pretty much nonstop since March. I'm not going to tell you right now what brood they're uh, currently on, but we'll get into that with Owen because it's been very eye-opening for me. It's like they don't want to quit making uh, babies, which is a good thing for dove hunters. It means a target-rich environment if all of these uh, dove parents are out there just getting their freak on nonstop. Uh so we'll get into that and then also take a look at Texas dove hunting numbers. How many birds do we harvest annually? Um, white wing versus morning dove. Are they expanding their ranges still? The, when it comes to the white wing, we've seen their northward push over the last uh, 20 years or so. Has that finally plateaued? We'll look at northern birds migrating south to Texas during the winter. So a whole bunch of stuff concerning dove and dove hunting. And then we'll talk a little shotgunning with Olympic gold medalist Amber English, who took home first place in women's uh, first place. She took home the gold medal, guys, in uh, which I guess is technically first place. But gold medal sounds so much more impressive. So Olympic champion, uh, shotgunner extraordinaire. She's also a first lieutenant in the U.S. Army. So we are excited to have Amber English join us here in just a little bit. That's what's on the docket for today. Certainly uh, going to get us pumped up for the pending hunting season, which will kick off in many states September 1st with their dove opener. And with that in mind, let's do a Kent Cartridge giveaway today. I've got a Kent Cap 
t-shirt and a box of steel dove loads. I think they're six and a half shot, maybe. Either way, who doesn't want free ammo? Just uh, email the word Kent, that's Kent, into Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com, and we'll get you entered into this week's giveaway. Coming up next, Texas Parks and Wildlife Dove Program Leader Owen Fitzsimmons joins us right here on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Gonna take him straight to hell. There were tears on her face when her eyes turned black. Didn't know a 12 gauge would kick like that. But he's never gonna hit her again. He's never gonna hit her again. Hi, Brett Jepson here with Three Curl Lease Connection. I'd like to invite you to come enjoy some of Texas' best dove hunting just minutes outside of Dallas. We have many private dove leases available for this upcoming season, including milo, wheat, sunflower, and cornfields. Leases come in different sizes and prices, so we can fit anyone's budget. We have the lease that's perfect for you and your group. We don't overcrowd multiple groups into one property, and you'll have the first pick at renewing your lease for years to come. Please visit us at threecurl.com and click on leases for your property listings. That's T-H-R-E-E-C-U-R-L.com something nostalgic about the old-timey general store and that's exactly what you're going to find in downtown Goldwave, texas at the mills county general store they're licensed ffl with rifle pistols and shotguns ammo gun accessories hunting accessories deer corn and attractants sporting goods they've got a wide array of knives to choose from plus insulated apparel for both work and camo for hunting season fishing supplies they've got foods like anchor tea grass-fed beef dublin sodas gourmet sauces and a whole lot more. Also, Ace Hardware. From wall to wall, they have it all. Check it out. The Mills County General Store right there in Goldthwaite, Texas. And I was alone there with no birds inside. I did everything when I could and went to the roost at night. I don't know where it started or and I was in danger for being scumped once again. I was looking for diving on the wrong place. Table Smith, welcome everybody back to SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg Firearms. We are all set to talk some dove with our Texas Parks and Wildlife Dove Program Leader, Owen Fitzsimmons. But before we do that, this segment is brought to you by Mossberg Firearms and the new 940 platform coming up this season. You'll see the 940 Waterfowl and 940 Snow Goose guns specifically. So stay tuned for that. It is Mossberg's new 940 semi-auto loading platform. And you can find more info on it as well as Mossberg's entire lineup of rifles, pistols, and shotguns right there at Mossberg.com. Without further ado, uh, let's bring on our first guest, Texas Parks and Wildlife's Owen Fitzsimmons. Thanks for being here. Yeah, happy to be here. My pleasure. So um, first of all, tell us about your official job description with Texas Parks and Wildlife. I know you've held this position for about four years now. Yeah, it, uh, it's kind of a unique position. Um, when we deal with migratory game birds, we break everything into waterfowl and basically everything that's not waterfowl. Uh, the title is actually Webless Migratory Game Bird Program Leader, uh, but I cover everything from doves to sandhill cranes to snipe to woodcock to rails to gallinules. Sandhill cranes, um, that was something I, I hunted some as a younger man, and then last year I went on like my first guided hunt compared to you know, me and my buddy just throwing out a few decoys and <laughs> basically just pass shooting them, you know. Uh, right. But, oh, my gosh, watching those huge birds decoy into your lap. Uh, uh, we were out in Lubbock with um, Final Descent, and it was incredible. Yeah, Sano Crane hunting has really, really blown up the past few years um, to the point where we're just about double the amount of hunters almost every year the past few years. Mm. Well, I know they stay booked up, so. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting. It's one of those things where you have to get a, a special permit, but it's free. Yeah, that kind of goes back to uh, just trying to track the number of, of crane hunters um, and the way that we the way that you have to get your crane permit in Texas these days. You know, you have to go through either the website or go to a game warden um, office. And the reason we did that was because it was free. 
uh, so many people got those permits that we couldn't really track who was actually doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, because a lot of people get the uh, the permit sort of like, well, maybe I'll go, might as well get it. Right. But then they end up not going. So to, to get a better handle on that, that we kind of made it a little bit difficult to get. Uh, you know, you had to go through an extra step or two, but but yeah. And there's plenty of states that don't allow crane hunting at all. Yeah, it's really controversial. Um, you know, the Central Flyway has kind of been the the one flyway that's had hunting probably since the 60s. And Texas has been one of those that's really uh, embraced crane hunting. But there are several other states where it's very controversial. People don't like uh, any harvest of their, you know, their cranes. Yeah. So I just got back from South Africa and their national bird is the blue crane. And it yeah. is, it, I mean, it reminds me uh, every bit, just like our Sandhill crane and yeah. the way that they behave and fly and size and, um, but I mean, if you shot one of those over there, you'd be under the jail. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of cr- crane populations around the world that aren't doing very well. You know, obviously we have, uh, whooping cranes here, uh, one of the most endangered animals that we have. Uh, but the one that we know is doing really well and the most numerous crane we have in the world is sandhills. So, Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially our mid-continent population that comes through Texas uh, is doing is very healthy these days. Well, and they're very delicious because you, you think <laughs> of a crane, like it, I just think about blue herons that are hanging out, you know, around every neighborhood pond in Texas and what they eat, frogs, fish, you know, stuff like that. Probably don't taste very good, uh, but sandhills eat agriculture right. and do they ever mix in like crustaceans and other things or is it pretty much just straight wheat and agriculture? Well, you know, as a function of their habitat and kind of where they're at, it's a lot of agriculture, a lot of seeds, uh, tubers, things like that. But, um, if they happen, you know, they're, they're generalists, they'll eat whatever they can find. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if they happen upon a, a, an abundant food source somewhere, they're going to take advantage of it. Uh Okay. Well, I don't think they'd taste like beef if they weren't stocking up on, our, uh, exactly. And that's a good thing. I mean, our, our uh, agricultural practices in this country, I'm sure, is why that population is doing so well. Yeah, that's one of the reasons. Yeah. Um, and they're, you know, they're a big population anyway. Their breeding grounds range from essentially Siberia all the way east to like Minnesota, you know, mm-hmm. the whole northwest uh, part of the North America. So um, they occupy a lot of different habitats and, and they're found all over the country or all over North America. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. they're they're, uh, they're doing really well. Um, the last we're, we're still waiting on the results from our survey from this March from the fish and wildlife service. And of course, last year's surveys were canceled due to COVID, but 2018 and 2019, the mid continent population that we have here in Texas, uh, numbered around a million birds, maybe just, just shy of a million. Well, uh, interesting stuff on sand Hills. If you haven't done it, I highly recommend it. Uh, it is, it is a hoot to see those big birds fall and the guide's yelling rain out and we've got like 10 birds falling at one time you know it's oh it's a lot of fun and absolutely great table fair i really want to talk about dove today as september 1st is right around the corner myself and i know many other texans will be yanking their kiddos out of school i wanted to ask you about some things on dove biology and this stems from my like personal experience in my backyard i've got a, a, a outdoor speaker on the patio and there have been four clutches now of dove being hatched there. They started in March. They did it again in July, early July, and then they just had their last hatch uh, about two weeks ago, and now she's back on the nest again. <laughs> and I know it's got to be the same pair of dove that are doing this. I read that they could have up to six um, hatches in a year if conditions are right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this year conditions have been really, really good. Uh, You know, the wet weather's been kind of conducive to, to uh, a lot of broods, you know, repeat nesting and things like that. And like you said, yeah, six nests um, up to six nests, who knows, maybe more in some years, Uh, but that's a lot. They're very prolific breeders. Uh, You're probably seeing the same pair. Uh, Mm -hmm. They will come back to the same spot to nest. Um, And uh, they're, they're very quick to lay eggs, incubate, raise those chicks and move on. And there's even uh, been some documented cases. It's not uncommon for them to start a new nest before they even finish uh, fledging the chicks that they're, that they're working on at the moment. This is the quickest they've done it. I mean, those chicks were, were in the backyard last week, the, the two new ones, they're gone now. And now she's back. And um, my wife was like, those chicks are back in the nest. I was like, no, that's, that's mama again. Yeah. So I went to yeah. go take the nest down and I was like, what's the point? They just keep coming back. So, yeah. Um, 
but I've, they've they've been there three out of four years mm-hmm. and they took COVID off but they've been there every other year um you think that's the same pair i, I don't know what the lifespan is on a, on a dove well, but it seems like that'd be getting up there if they were four or five years old yeah the average lifespan of a dove what we know from banding studies is about a year and a half Mm-hmm. Um, but we, I do know that we get a lot of doves at, you know, up to eight or 10, 12 years old, if they're in an area that they don't get, you know, that they don't have a lot of threats, uh, whether that's, you know, hunting or, or whatever predation. Uh, but we, you know, a lot of times the young will come back and nest in the same area that they were born. Mm-hmm. So it could be the same pair could be subsequent generations up from, you know, from that original pair. Uh-huh. Well, I've just thought it was really cool to just see how the work that they're doing now yeah. on their fourth uh, fourth go round here um a year and a half it's not a very long lifespan so who knows and but the, i would say five or six years ago around frisco mckinney they they were, probably would have been had very good odds of getting shot but uh so much has been developed now that there's not as much dove hunting right around here as there once was yeah um yeah and that's an issue uh pretty much everywhere you know we're seeing a, a long slow decline in morning doves at the national level and we think it it probably has to do with development and loss of habitat. Uh, mm. Just, you know, as, as the human population grows, uh, there's just less room for wildlife. That's interesting. What is our statewide population of morning dove? Um, and you could give us the resident population, like when the season starts and then as the weather cools off, if, I don't know, obviously we get an influx of birds from Northern States. Mm-hmm. I don't know if our birds are heading to Mexico or Central America, but uh, break that down for us. Sure. Um, long-term average is, uh, and we do, we do surveys in the spring parks and wildlife does. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of our resident population and long-term average is about 26 million. Uh, this year we're just under that at around 25 million. Um, we think those numbers swell up to 50 or 60 million in the, uh, you know, in September and October. Uh, that's really hard to measure because birds come, come and go, they come in, right. in you know, in different timings. So it's really hard to know for sure. But, uh, but yeah, we, we're doing well though there. Um, you know, we're kind of below average at the past few years. Um, mostly because in 2014 to 2016, we had a huge increase in morning doves, uh, in Texas. Uh, at the same time, there's a big boom in quail populations. And so, uh, a lot of that we think is weather related, uh, but we're kind of back down to what, you know, the normal population level at about 26, 25, 26 million, uh, white wings. We're sitting at about 12 million breeding birds. Um, which is about, you know, we've kind of leveled off. Those birds have, have been expanding out of the Rio Grande Valley for 30 years now, yeah. 30 plus years. They're, they're expanding out of Texas. Uh, but what we're seeing in Texas now is we had that line going up, 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 up. And then four or five years ago, it kind of started leveling off between 12 and 15 million. Okay. Uh, and so do a lot of these birds head south? We think based on a lot of banding data over a long period of time, uh, 50 to 60% of the birds in Texas stay in Texas. Um, mm-hmm. And then we, you know, the rest of them either head South. Of course we get a lot of uh, wintering birds and, and stopover birds in the winter and the fall and winter. But um, there's with white wings, there's a lot, we don't know. Uh, you know, the historical population in the Valley, we, we know was migratory. Uh, but as they've expanded and they've kind of moved into urban areas, we think about 80% of the population in Texas is urban or suburban based. No, we and a, lot a lot of, of them up here. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of those birds we think are non-migratory because they don't need to leave. They've got food and water. Um, the cities stay a little bit warmer in the winter, uh, so they don't need to go anywhere. So uh, that's one thing that's kind of on my to-do list. As soon as uh, telemetry technology gets a little bit better and a little cheaper, a little more affordable, uh, well, I want to start tracking, tracking these birds throughout the year and kind of see what their, their ecology is and how they're using these, these urban areas and, and, uh, moving in and out. And do white wings have the same like nesting, um, behavior as morning dove? Well, they're not, we don't think they're quite as prolific. They will have multiple broods, uh, but we don't think it's up to, you know, five or six. Um, but it could be, you know, but one difference for sure that we know these days is, you know, that historical population was very um, colonial. So they nest in these big, dense colonies down in South Texas. And a lot of the urban birds, they're not anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of a question, like, how does that affect, you know, breeding success? How does that affect how, you know, how many broods they might have? We don't really know at this point. Okay. And like a morning dove, is it usually two eggs per 
per right. nest. Yeah, two eggs per nest, sometimes one, sometimes three, uh, but about the same timing too. They'll, they'll lay eggs, uh, incubate, hatch, and raise those chicks in about five to six weeks, sometimes okay. four. Well, yeah, I think the ones on my back patio were about at that four-week clip. I mean, they're mating fools for sure. We're going to take a quick break, come back, uh, dive into the Eurasian collared dove, an invasive species that I don't think as many people are talking about these days, plus lead versus steel shot studies, the number of uh, shells. It takes a an average dove hunter to knock down a bird, all that, and who knows what else when we come back with Texas Parks and Wildlife's Owen Fitzsimmons. That segment brought to you by SCI, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. Whether it's dove or pronghorn antelope or an elephant in Africa, SCI is passionate about conservation, both foreign and domestically. They've got an office in D.C. to stay on top of anti-hunting legislation. So if you want to become a part of this great group of passionate hunters, check us out at safariclub.org. We'll continue the Dove discussion next on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. SR Night Vision and Thermal Imaging Technology has been helping me light up the night for over a decade. Uh, currently got two incredible units, the Helion 2.0 Thermal Monocular. Like You can detect things out in a field over 1,000 yards. It's insanity. Plus, pairing that with a Thermion XP50 Thermal Rifle Scope. Dude, it's like poor pigs, to be honest with you. Coyotes as well. It's... Uh, the technology alone has come so far in the last few years, and the price has gone down, so the working man can't afford it. The Thermion has internal recording. It has a diverse color palette. You want to do red hot, white hot, black hot, which is my favorite. You know, there's other ones as well. It's got too many to even count off the top of my head. It is the creme de la creme when it comes to thermal optics. It's the Thermion XP50. You can find it at PulsarNV.com. Spawn is right around the corner. Your reels have been re-spooled and the tackle box is ready to roll. But the question is, can your truck handle another season of pulling your boat in and out of the water every weekend? Call David Boone at Third Coast Diesels. He'll make sure your truck is not what sinks your next fishing trip. Offering a widespread array of diesel parts and services, call 214-326-1176 or visit thirdcoastdiesels.com today. There's the music of Brent Cobb bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith here with you, and we are still visiting with our Texas Parks and Wildlife Dove Program Leader. Now he has another title. I think it's like Non-Webbed Migratory Bird Program Leader. But for all intents and purposes, he deals with Sandhill Crane and Dove. And we are talking Dove here today with Owen Fitzsimmons. And we'll dive back into that conversation momentarily first. However, the segment brought to you by the brand spanking new Vortex Venom. It's a 5 to 25 by 56 rifle scope. 34 millimeter tube, first focal plane, MSRP. I mean, six ninety nine. That is a lot of scope, a lot of features for the price. And you can find the Venom at vortexoptics.com. Um, Owen, thanks for sticking around. I want to transition into an invasive dove species that it seems like no one really talks about anymore. And that's the Eurasian collared dove. As far as their breeding habits are concerned. Are they as prolific as our native morning and white-winged dove uh, that we discussed in the previous segment? It's really hard to know. Um, the way we do our surveys, you know, we capture all doves that we see, um, but those birds are kind of, we, so we have a rural survey that kind of target morning doves and we have an urban survey that kind of captures, uh, targets white wings. And Eurasians are kind of in that interface where, you know, they're, they're, there's always a pair at a farmhouse. There's always a couple just outside of town, but they're in mm -hmm. town too. Um, so we don't get enough observations to know 
to have a really uh, a strong estimate, but we think they've pretty much leveled off and kind of, you know, if you look at what they did in Europe, um, there's a lot of literature, a lot of, of records that came from Europe when they moved across the European continent in about 200 years, colonized the entire continent. That's essentially what they've done here. They showed up in Florida in the late 70s, early 80s, they think from a captive population. Uh, the first sighting in Texas was, I think, 96. Hmm. Uh, since then, they are now found everywhere from Alaska to Panama. Uh, oh, wow. But not, I don't think they're in, you know, they're not in the densities that you'd find our native doves. So they, they're well documented in Europe. Uh, the young will disperse several hundred miles and just find the next suitable spot, you know, the next farmhouse, the next town, whatever. So they kind of leapfrog across the landscape, uh, but they're not found in, you know, the big densities that you might find uh, morning doves or white wings. Interesting. Are they, um, someone told me, and it might've been, I don't know, it might've been Corey Mason a long time ago said that they'll push, um, well, they'll take over the nest of like a, a morning dove or a, a white wing. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, uh, which made me hate them. <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of documentation of individual interactions that you know they're bigger they're more aggressive um mm -hmm. they'll they'll knock birds off a of feeder that kind of thing but um at the population level we're not really seeing any impacts um you know it's, that's something that's always kind of on our radar that a lot of people have looked at uh but at this point you know there's we're not seeing major impacts or implications yeah. you know and i think a part of that is there's a lot of food on the landscape for doves uh there's you know, habitat for nesting is not really limited. Uh, these birds will nest as you, you know, in your backyard. I, mm -hmm. I've got a buddy who's got one nesting on his kid's basketball goal in the backyard. Um, so, you know, that habitat and, and resources aren't necessarily limiting. So I think that's kind of a big factor on why we're not seeing uh, uh, some impacts yeah. from those birds, but I, it very I, well could be in the future. I've been doing this for 12 years and I feel like the the stigma attached to those has kind of waned a little bit. Like it was kind of a negative thing uh, 10 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. Like these dove really suck. They're going to compete with our native, our native species. So really that's kind of gone away. It doesn't seem like they really are at all. So, right. So. Yeah. They're just, they're what everybody calls them. They're bonus birds now. Yeah. Yeah. They're fun. So you talked about the population of morning dove and, and white wing. Um, <laughs> as we head into the season here being somewhere around 25 million for morning dove, 12 million for white wing. How many dove do Texas hunters kill annually? Uh, historically in a typical year, we're shooting around 5 million morning doves and two to 3 million white wings. Um, the past few years, we, we saw a big drop in hunters in 2017 mm -hmm. um, from about 450 to 300 or so. Uh, so a pretty significant drop. And uh, we kind of assumed that was a Hurricane Harvey effect, uh, but they haven't gone back up yet. We're kind of still sitting at that 300,000 hunter mark. Uh, so hunter and harvest are very, very related. Um, you know, so when we saw the drop in hunters, we saw a subsequent drop in harvest. Uh, these days we're shooting three and a half to four million uh, morning doves and one and a half to two um, white wings. So five or six million birds. I wonder what percentage of those are shot in the first like 10 days of the season, the first two weekends. Yeah. The majority, um, we think around 85% are shot in the first two or three weeks of September. Really? Yeah. Okay. yeah I mean, it, I do it too. I go the first week or two and then you, the field that I was hunting is shot out. And if I, you know, get an invite where somebody has them, I mean, I'll go again, but, um, I think that's pretty much the mentality of most dove hunters go and it's good. Right. And it's kind of a two-part deal. Um, you know, people move on to deer hunting or whatever after the mm -hmm. first couple of weekends, but also those first two weekends, you've got all those birds available for harvest, all those young birds that were hatched this year, all the adults, you know, it's a, it's a big number of birds right then. Uh, and then later in September, the second or third, fourth week, birds start moving out, northern birds start moving in. So things kind of fluctuate. Uh, and that's when people start having a scout, you know, and they, some weekends mm -hmm. aren't as good, but that early opener, that's kind of, you know, universally, even not just in Texas, but across uh, everywhere that they hunt dove, those first two weekends are, are, that's when everybody goes. That's when most of the harvest takes place. Yeah. As far as lead versus steel shot, I know Corey probably gave us some information on a study that was done years ago, mm -hmm. but I don't know if that's dated or, or what your take is on that. I have a, I'm fortunate to have a Kent Cartridge as a sponsor. So they send me uh, steel dove loads and 
I personally have not noticed any difference on lethality. I mean, Dove are such a small and wimpy target, uh, exactly. Frank. So I figured I'd get your take on that though. Yeah. Uh, Corey was involved in a study that Parks and Wildlife did, um, years ago that was, it was strictly a lethality study. You know, there've been a number of studies on, uh, on lead ingestion from doves, you know, in certain dove fields, they pick up lead for grit and how that might affect populations. And there's uh, different results from some of those studies. It's kind of inconclusive, um, you know, and people interpret some of that different ways, but as far as lethality, lead versus steel, uh, that study that, that Parks and Wildlife did was, was really, really good and kind of showed that as long as you hit the bird, you know, because they had, they had blind tests for these hunters. They had no idea what they were shooting, lead, steel, yeah. whatever. And uh, as long as they hit the bird, you know, like lethality there's no difference between lead and steel so um and like you said you, you didn't notice any difference i've been shooting steel uh at doves for many many years now and you know i dropped down in a size i went from you know seven and a half or so to sixes um i feel like it's got a little bit more knockdown for some reason but yeah. i shoot 20 gauge too um but I, I think most hunters if you put you know if you give them blind shells they're not going to know the difference and and you know i think the study kind of proved that right right well and 20 gauge, I think as we get older, it's like, why do I keep beating myself up with a 12 gauge? I, well, that's what yeah. it was for me anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've got a 20 gauge auto. That's just the smoothest shooting gun and you can shoot oh, it all day. I love it. Yeah. I've got a, I've got a 20 gauge semi-auto and, um, then I also have a 12 gauge over under, which looks really fancy and stuff. And, but as far as which one hurts my shoulder, I'm going with the 20, even though the other yeah. one, it looks really cool. Uh, but yeah, no, give me the 20 all day. Um, see what else I was going to ask you. What about uh, number of shots per bird? I've heard that it's like it takes the average Texas hunter seven shots to kill one dove. Is that accurate? Yeah, uh, there's been a lot of stuff. I mean, from the 1950s to, to present, I, there's a, dozens of studies out there. That, and it usually ranges four to eight shells. Wow. Uh, so you could probably say the average hunter shoots about six per bird. So they're, Which, they're shooting less birds than beers drank out there <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. which i'm yeah, not advocating but i know you guys do it um so okay people need to work on those numbers but at, at least the manufacturing uh, fire the um shot show manufacturers are doing well yep. Um, yep. other than michigan what states in the central flyway don't allow dove hunting oh that's a good question uh are there a lot no no most of them are in the northeast um, you know, far Northeast, Delaware, mm -hmm. uh, New Hampshire, those places like up there, but I don't even know off the top of my head. I'd have to, I have to look at the map. Okay. Um, yeah. Michigan is the one that stands out. I always hear those guys complaining about it. Yeah. I don't know if it's their state bird or what the deal is there, but it, same kind of deal with, uh, you know, the controversy over cranes. Um, a lot of people in certain States, there's a history that goes back where those birds were kind of revered as, you know, non-game species and they just, that's just kind of stuck. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I guess biblically yeah, they're, they're like the sign of peace, but yeah, they also taste great. <laughs> <laughs> they're also, they're also the most important game bird in the U S yeah, so, really they are. Yeah. There's more, more, uh, dove hunters in the U S than any other, I think all the other game birds combined. Um, oh. you know, they're by far the most hunters, uh, as far as birds go in Texas. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, it's such a social sport. You don't have to be quiet. You don't really have to wear a camo if you don't want to. Mm -hmm. uh, put out a mojo or two and, you know, sit your ass in a field that you know has dove in it. Yep. You're going to have opportunities. Yeah, it's a great sport for people. You know, there's a lot of uh, – these days we're seeing kind of a shift to a lot of uh, younger adults who've never hunted coming out of the city who, who want to kind of get into it. And that's one of the easiest uh, sports that they can get into. They just need, you know, like you said, shotgun shells place to go um there's not a whole lot you can mess up necessarily uh if you just if you know what a dove looks like and you know just get out there and go um it's great for kids like you said give them a 410 or a 20 gauge get them started um you don't have to sit there super quiet super still yeah um yeah it's a great great way to get people into the sport what um what is your prediction for for this season you said conditions were good i mean i just said i have had this bird nest four times on my patio yeah. And you're up in the McKinney area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so looking at our surveys, um, we didn't do surveys last year from 2020 with COVID uh, numbers are up or either 
at or, or up from 2019, pretty much statewide. But the further north you go, the further we are um, below the long-term average. And I, I think a lot of that has to do with uh, the winter storm that we had. Uh, initially, I didn't expect much of an impact. You know, I got a lot of reports of mortalities from, you know, with morning doves and, and especially white wings, uh, but not enough to really make me think that we would see much of an impact. But uh, with white wings, I can say pretty confidently uh, in the panhandle parts of uh, the closer you get to the Red River, you know, maybe north of Dallas and some of those North Texas areas, uh, we did see quite a drop in white wing numbers, which is unusual because, you, you know, like I said, white wings, they, they've been on the up and up or at least level yeah. for many years. Uh, so that I'm pretty sure is a, is a winter storm effect. And the, uh, the numbers that we have for morning doves in the central and north zones are also lower than I expected. And so I think that might be uh, effect from the winter storm too. But like you said, we've had, um, you know, really wet uh, and, and cool, relatively cool summer across the state. Rangelands have looked really good. Um, so it's kind of a, it's going to be a mixed forecast. It's, it, it's really region specific. So there's, there's areas like uh, I know around, around Hondo Uvalde, they had some really bad hailstorms mm-hmm. uh, back in April and May that probably knocked nesting back. So that there's probably, that's kind of a peak nesting time. So uh, there might be areas like that that uh, might have got hit a little harder with some of those storms. Like I said, the panhandle with the winter storms, they're probably going to see less white wings this year. Um, but I think with this productive season that we've had, there's a lot of breeding birds that have been pushed out. You know, we're getting hatchier productions, I think, really high this year. Uh, so hopefully that'll kind of offset any of those losses. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking central north zone hit or miss in a few places, but most for the most part, we're sitting at about an average season, maybe, maybe a better season. You know, one thing I think we'll see uh, is because the habitat is so good this, this far into August, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of food and water on the landscape once birds start coming in from those Northern States. So, uh, you know, late se- later season hunting might be really, really good this year. Um, the one prediction that I, I think I can make pretty confidently is the South zone is, it should be on fire this year. Um, mm. We're seeing some of the highest estimates we've ever seen for both morning and white wing doves um, ha- kind of has been that way for the past two or three years. Um, and it, it's just, they've been on, they've been on fire for the past few years. And I think this year is going to be even better. Okay. Oh, you mentioned late season hunting. So what, what is our framework this year and how many people actually hunt that, that uh, was it 10 days or two weeks in December? Yeah. Um, so we have 90 days. Oh, okay. that we can set the seasons and we can have one split in Texas. Uh, and typically what we try to do, because we know it gets pretty cold up, up in the North zone, um, you know, in, in December. So the late season is not as important as some of the, you know, like in the South zone, we can push that late season all the way into late January. Um, January 25th would be the federal cutoff. Um, so what we try to do is stagger that and push the first part, first half of the season a little bit longer in, in the North zone and the second half a little bit longer in the south zone to give people that opportunity late uh, December, January. I don't have a really good handle on how many people actually utilize that second half. Uh, we know it's not very many, like like we talked about. Most people are hunting. I think I've gone early. once. Yeah, most home. people hunt early yeah. September. Uh, but if you go to the south zone, you can have some – I mean, I can't tell you how many crane hunts have turned into – on the coast – Corpus Christi area have turned into dove hunts because the cranes <laughs> didn't cooperate. So we just went back to the truck, you know, grabbed our dove guns and, and went back out. And uh, the South zone has some really, really good late season opportunities. And every year I hear about more and more people taking advantage of that. Okay. And when will that, when is that? I mean, it's, it, Christmas falls into that for a reason, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, I have to pull this up. Looking it up I, right now. I'm looking it up because uh, every is year, the way we 10 do- days or two weeks. Uh, it's usually, what do we do? We usually do about, it's, it's longer than that. Okay. Look it up right now. This always confuses me because we have, we're coming off last season's dates, talking about this season's dates. And in my job, we're already talking about next year's dates. <laughs> so I always have to look this up. Uh, so North Zone, first half, September 1st and November 12th. Second, they all start the second half on December 17th this year. That's to allow people to hunt around Christmas, New Year's. Um, so like the South zone, we're talking about over a month on that second half, hmm. um, about 40 days or so, uh, central zone about a month, 30 days. And then the North zone, that second half is going to be okay. two and a half weeks. Yeah. Do we, do we have any idea of 
the number of people that come from out of state to hunt dove in Texas? Is it a big attraction or is it mostly just resident hunters? It's mostly resident. I think in a given year, five to 10% could be usually around 5% or less. I think, um, Okay. What's really interesting is uh, how many people move around zones within Texas, like South zone, about half the South zone hunters are from, don't live in the South zone. Right. So a lot of people move, you know, head down there to hunt every year. Uh-huh. Have you ever done Argentina? I have never done Argentina. Not yet on the list. Yeah. I put a deposit down in 2019 and then COVID hit. So we yeah. haven't made that, that up yet, but uh, it's going to happen sooner or later, but I'm, I'm going to an area intentionally to I'm shooting a couple thousand dove in a day. doesn't really do anything for me. Mm-hmm. A couple hundred be cool. And then, but we're going so we can also hunt ducks. Yeah. Um, so they've got some teal species and stuff yeah. down there that obviously we, we've never seen. So um, that's kind of be our, our deal. I think right. there you could, you could also do upland uh, if you want to do that. So really a lot of opportunity for wing yeah. shooting. Yeah. That quantity thing is not, not for me either I, i'm more about what species can i see you know i'd like to uh-huh. see the huge flocks of doves but uh um, sure shooting a thousand's not <laughs> not for me either <laughs> not knocking you guys that have shot five thousand dove in yeah. a day but uh more power to you and i'm sure you're uh, pinning shoulder surgeries i hope that they go well <laughs> <laughs> um all right man well hey owen i certainly appreciate the time thanks for jumping on today and talking all things uh, dove with us i hope it's a great season and uh Take a newbie hunting. Yeah. Yeah. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Cable. So there you have it. The word from the horse's mouth, uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife's Owen Fitzsimmons. That segment on all things Dove was proudly brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Blinds. If you haven't yet, check out the 600-pound stand and fill. I've been using these things exclusively for five or six years now. It's so easy. Gone are the days of using a ladder or backing your pickup truck up next to the feeder to fill it. Now you just stand there and fill it on your own two feet God gave you. It's that simple. It's the stand and fill. You can get it in 300, 600, or 1,000-pound models, and you can find it at allseasonsfeeders.com. Coming up next, we check in with Team USA Olympic gold medal shotgunner Amber English on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. hero to us all. We were raising cane and swapping songs. It's Cable here, and if you're listening to this show, you probably like ARs. And I'm not talking about antler restrictions. I'm talking about, you know, ARs, modern sporting rifles. And Timber Creek Outdoors has the best way I've found to take your AR to the next level. It's the Enforcer Kit. It features high-end performance parts, and jaw-dropping looks. It's perfect for sportsmen, competitors, firearms, enthusiasts, and people who trust their lives to their equipment, like you and I. When combined together, these parts improve usability, as well as ergonomics, big word there, and dependability of any small-framed modern sporting rifle. Timber Creek products are manufactured by Americans in the USA, God bless America, and they implement uncompromising quality control and offer a lifetime warranty They've got a bunch of different color options, something for everybody. I've got a Hunter Green Enforcer Kit on my 224 Valkyrie. Absolutely love it. You will, too. Check out the Enforcer Kit at TimberCreekOutdoorsInc.com. Hey, y'all. Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a -a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Still sing, dance a little closer to me. Dance a little closer now. Dance a little closer tonight. Dance a little closer to me. Hey, it's closing time and love's on sale tonight at the Love at the Five and Dimes, a classic there from the late great Nancy Griffith, who passed away this week. Rest in peace, Nancy. 
Uh, her music will live on, no doubt about that. Cable Smith here with you. Thanks for tuning in to SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show, presented by Mossberg Firearms. We're about to talk some shotgunning with uh, a world champion. That's right, Olympic gold medalist Amber English is here, and we'll jump into that conversation. I've got a lot of things to ask this lovely young patriot who is also a first lieutenant in the United States Army. But before we jump into that conversation, this segment of the show proudly brought to you by Big and J. If you haven't seen their lineup of white tail attractants, what are you waiting for? Just go to my Instagram. It's littered with photos and videos of deer just unable to help themselves. You put the Big and J out. They come to it like it's crack for deer within hours. Not kidding you. Check it out. Big and J. You can find their entire lineup of whitetail attractants at bigandj.com. All right. Um, well, let's go ahead and bring her on right now. Joining us from, I think, Georgia. It's my pleasure to welcome Team USA gold medalist Amber English to the show. Thank you for having me. So where are you joining us from today? I am currently in Fort Benning, Georgia. Well, first of all, thanks for your service. We appreciate that immensely. Thank now, you. You come from a family that's deeply entrenched in in shooting sports. Tell us a little bit about that. I do. You know, I kind of fought that for a long time. <laughs> I uh, grew up doing gymnastics, but you know, shooting has always been a fun family event for us uh, ever since I was really young. Um, so you fancied yourself as like Simone Biles, but really were, was like. Annie Oakley at heart. Yeah, I guess pretty much. I wasn't very good at shooting when I started, to be honest, but I always had to compete with my brother and cousins and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, yeah, I grew up uh, doing gymnastics and then uh, right about 15, 16, I, you know, I had a come to Jesus meeting and decided, you know, this is something I don't really want to pursue uh, through the rest of high school or college. Mm -hmm. um, so I took some time off and let my body heal up a little bit. And then I, um, I became very bored just focusing on school. So I uh, decided I needed to compete in something and, you know, shooting was kind of a natural thing. Well, I'm, and I'm sure with your parents, like, so was it your dad that was, um, more of a shotgunner and your mom was a rifle, like a competitive um, rifle shooter. My dad shot running target, which is still a rifle discipline, but it was moving, uh, moving targets. Oh, cool. So it was the closest thing to shotgun without being shotgun. Uh -huh. um, my mom and aunt and everybody else shot rifle. And so I'm kind of the only black sheep to branch out and shoot or get into shotgun. Uh-huh. Okay. Very cool. So you were actually an alternate in 2016 for the Olympics. And then this year won the gold medal. So what happened over those five years to go from like on the fringe of making the team to, Hey, I just won the gold medal at the freaking Olympics. Yeah. Uh, it's been a, a pretty crazy ride to get here, to be honest. Um, like you said, I was the alternate for 16. I just came up short for making that team. And I was living in Colorado Springs and around the Olympic training center and, um, unfortunately I lost my dad in between Olympic trials, um, mm. in 16. So it was a lot for me to even just get back on the range and finish that match. Um, but I took some time off after that. And I was really unsure if I was even going to keep shooting at that point. Um, but my teammates, uh, Vincent Hancock, he won the gold, uh, in Tokyo as well. That's his third one. He kind of pushed me to get back out there and, and start training again. I said, okay, you know what? Uh, I really feel like I have some serious unfinished business, so I'm going to go ahead and give the next quad uh, a go, which ended up being five years. Mm -hmm. And the uh, the difference was I, I took some time and decided to join the Army, which brought me down to good old Fort Benning, Georgia. And uh, yeah, just had a big change of pace. So how does your training regimen work out and how do you balance that between your your Army duty? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be in um, two units in the military that support what we do. Um, I went through the world-class athlete program at Fort Carson, and then I got attached um, to the Army Marksmanship Unit here in Fort Benning. So the, the WCAP, for short, um, kind of has a bunch of different sports all in one unit, and the AMU is just shooting kind of specific. So, um 
you know, I'm very, very lucky to be able to, you know, shoot and train and travel full time um, in skeet shooting and shotgun. And then in our off time, we're kind of doing a lot more recruiting and, and teaching the rest of the, the force how to technically be more lethal. Mm-hmm. So apply because you don't typically think of um, shotgunning as something that is applicable to the military. I, maybe like the guys who bust in the door will have a, you know, a scatter gun. When you talk about your expertise, how does that apply to actual military strategy? You know, it really comes down to um, getting yourself to do what you want to do under an immense amount of pressure. So that is something that translates to the rest of the military is, mm-hmm. you know, having your training pay off at the right time. And in, you know, certain cases for other military members that are deployed, you know, those, those uh, big decisions under pressure can mean life and death for them or their teammates. So Mm -hmm. pretty important. And you're actually training. I mean, well, not training. You are headed towards a career in the military. Yeah. I'm a, uh, I'm a first Lieutenant. I'm about uh-huh. to be captain here uh, in a little bit and then we'll see, you know, I'm coming off of active duty actually next month um, where I still owe some reserve time. So I'll uh, finish out some reserve time and then decide, you know, what I want to do with the military after that. The cool thing is there's a lot of options and uh, opportunities within the army it- itself. Was combat something that you ever thought, you might have to do or that you would enjoy or was that something that terrified you um no it it's definitely uh, intriguing it's just in my current opportunity this is my job and, and we're fulfilling those duties by uh-huh. representing the u.s and the army on this on this platform but it's definitely not out of the question and um even as a reservist or in the reserves or guard or active duty people are still uh deploying so mm-hmm. it's it's definitely a potential thing Oh, and there's just such a mess right now in Afghanistan. It's like watching that is like, oh man, here we go again. So yeah. we'll have to monitor that. But um, take us through like a normal day in your life as far as training goes. So you just won the gold medal. How did you get there? Oh, it was a lot of insanity um, <laughs> mixed with obsession and just the will to to be better and you know, uh, since I have been shooting for a long time, I kind of was able to take a step back and, and really force myself to do uh, more quality versus quantity. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas when you're first starting, you just try to shoot as much as possible and, and um, you know, have that steady curve up. But, um, you know, I just expected a lot out of myself and was able to have, you know, more self-reflection and figure out what Uh, my weaknesses were on the range and, and through a lot of competing just to see what part I struggled with the most. So I think that was what I spent the most time doing was just self-reflection. So what did you struggle with the most? You know, um, what did you learn about yourself through that process? Before, um, so the Olympic trials is kind of a grueling process for us. It's a a series of a four-day match, and then we have two parts, so Olympic Trials 1 and Olympic Trials Part 2. And so after the first Olympic Trials, I realized, you know, we shoot a very, you know, various sequences. So we'll have day one is 75 targets, day two is 50 targets, and then you go back to day three, 75, and day day four is uh, another 50. And I was kind of struggling with just finishing that 50-day um, smaller amount of targets, more kind of a sprint. And I just struggled with kind of finishing that 125 uh, little event. So to get ready for that, I, uh, I told myself, Hey, if I don't shoot this certain amount of, or this score in training, my punishment is going to be, I have to put my gun down and put it in the safe and walk away and then figure out how, or what I'm going to do tomorrow. Um, instead of just sitting out there and getting comfortable with shooting an excessive amount of shells. I just kind of, you know, forced myself to figure it out without training a lot. So you would typically shoot like 75 shots in a day or 50? Um, Yeah, that's just for, you know. I know those are the matches, but so like you're training regularly. I'm out at the range today. I'm going to shoot X number of. Yeah, I mean, there were days where uh, I was shooting 500 plus shells a day for several weeks. <laughs> Have you ever been to Argentina? 
I have not, but I want to go really bad. I, I would love to do that. So hopefully it's in my future soon. Yeah. Uh, I haven't been either, but I did put a deposit on a trip nice. before COVID hit. So it's kind of been <laughs> delayed. I think Argentina is like one of the countries you still can't go to. Um, no. They're completely closed. So that has been tabled for uh, another day. And speaking of tabling, we're going to do that with this conversation. We need to work in a quick break. Uh, we'll come back and talk about what it was like competing in the Olympics, and uh, talk a little hunting as well. That segment brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. Land is the one thing they're not making anymore, but we all want it, whether that's to hunt dove, to run cattle, to go fishing, or just to get the hell out of the big city. Lone Star Ag Credit has been at this game for over 100 years. They'll help you finance your own piece of paradise. You can find them at LoneStarAgCredit.com. We'll be right back with more from gold medalist Amber English on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Hey guys, Cable here, and if there's one service, one company that I rely on heavily when planning my next backcountry hunt, it's Onyx Hunt. They have, for a long time, set the gold standard when it comes to giving me the information I need to basically predict where I'm going to find animals. And if you can hone in on where the animals are going to be, you're going to be more successful. Onyx uses their own topo maps, plus, I mean, geographical features like watering holes or a meadow system that works its way down a mountainside where you know those elk are going to be feeding and muleys in the morning and evenings. Yeah, it'll show you that as well. Uh, plus, of course, private property boundaries. Where does the National Forest end? Where does Rancher Joe's property start? Yeah, it's going to show you that as well. So whether you're planning a backcountry hunt or just picking ambush points to hang your tree stands on your whitetail property, Onyx shows it all to you. They've got different layers you can apply to a uh, specific grid or a piece of property. It's really rad. And here's the cool thing. You'll save 20% when you order your Onyx subscription by using my promo code LONESTAR20 when you check out at onxmaps.com. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of North Texas in Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, McKinney, Paris, and Sherman. Visit BobcatofDallas.com today. Turnpike Troubadour is bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith here with you. We've still got Olympic gold medal shotgunner, Team USA, Amber English on the line. But before we pick it up with the first lieutenant, uh, this segment of the presentation brought to you by Stealth Cam and the new Reactor wireless trail camera. Let me tell you something. When you pick up a locust in crystal clear clarity, that's right, a cicada, Right there, clear as day, picked up by the Reactor trail camera. You can find the Reactor right there at StealthCam.com. All right. Well, we appreciate you sticking around, Amber. Let's talk about what it was like being in Tokyo competing for Team USA, where you not only brought home the gold medal, but you did it in grand fashion, defeating the existing gold medalist by one shot, and in the process, you set a new Olympic record. Mm -hmm. That had to be uh, like validating for all yeah, the hard work you, know, you put in. You know, one of our biggest rivals is Italy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of our shotguns come from Italy. And so they are a huge powerhouse. So, you know, right at the very end, I was committed. I was like, I am not going to listen to their national anthem today. Mm -hmm. So whatever we have to do, to make that happen, I am not listening to their national anthem. Right. 
So what what is your favorite shotgun? I'm sure you guys have a sponsor. I don't know who it is, but um, what what is what is your go to? Yeah. So while we're in the military, we can't uh, have sponsorships per se, but um, I shoot a Parazzi MX8, which is a 12. That sounds Italian. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> There's usually, um, you know, people kind of stick to the three different guns uh, at our level. It's usually Parazzi, Beretta, or Kragoff, which is actually out of Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, and those guns are just built to withstand a million shells if you wanted to they're all very very custom so what fits me wouldn't fit you um but yeah they're they're built to last for a very long time well custom i mean to me the gun comes out of the box i put the shells in it and i go (laughs) miss dove so (laughs) i've never been fitted for a gun (laughs) probably never will be that's okay i think uh, the majority of people listening to this show probably haven't been fitted for a shotgun either um and that's okay Yep. We're not on the level uh, at the same level as you. You said this is a 28 gauge. I shoot 12, ga- 12 gauge. That's what I was going to ask yep. you. So this, is that the standard in the, in the, in the competitive community? Yeah. Or you, so, uh, do you have to shoot a 12? Um, no, you, you're not required to, but we'd be doing ourselves a disservice by taking right. BBs away. So, uh, uh-huh. you know, here in the States, you'll see younger kids shooting a 20 gauge or something like that um, just to get started. And then, as you progress through the ranks and you're just, everybody's shooting a 12 gauge. Right. I let my son shoot. I just got him a little Mossberg 410 okay. and I let him shoot that at the deer lease for the first time. He's eight. Oh, okay. And, perfect. And he was like, mm, I'm good. I don't need to shoot that again for a while. <laughs> I was like, so you don't want to go dove hunting this year? He was like, uh, maybe like when I'm 10. So I think it <laughs> had works. still a little too much recoil uh, yeah. for him. He's very skinny though. Um, now, as far as hunting goes, is that something that you've done a lot of or dabbled in? Oh yeah. We, uh, I grew up hunting pretty much everything that Colorado would house. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, my, my dad was a huge avid hunter and, um, some of my earliest memories were out in, you know, a field just sitting there forever it felt like forever um and my birthday was actually the like kind of opening weekend of um mule deer season out there so he tricked me from a very young age into thinking that was like my birthday present hmm. so <laughs> we used to go smart hunt. yeah what yeah. well, so ha- did, have you shot a mule deer or an elk or i have i've shot a few mule deer uh over the years i've shot an elk a few years ago i'm trying to get back uh, to hopefully shoot one this year, might need my family to go tie one up for me or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, so wow. did, um, did you guys do any upland hunting? I mean, y'all, y'all have a, a lot of grouse in Colorado. Yeah. You know, we didn't shoot many grouse, but I shot a lot of pheasant, uh, growing uh-huh. up and we would obviously, you know, my dad called it a national holiday. So he would pull us out of school and stuff. September 1st was, uh, <laughs> opening day of pheasant season oh opening day of dove season okay so yeah that's the same as us here and i don't know why kids are even required to go to school on that day it's bs like my kids are not going to school they know they're not going to school yeah their mom keeps telling them they are but they're they're just kind of like we just wink at each other i'm like yeah whatever not she doesn't mean it no you're not going yeah um yeah and they love it that a lot yeah uh, and they like to watch the dog. Like, like I said, my son's eight and my girls are six. The twins are six. So they are there. None of them are pulling the trigger yet. Uh, but man, they like, they like cleaning the dove. Oh yeah. They like all the snacks. Of course we get donuts <laughs> like your dad, you know, yep. and your birthday for mule deer. <laughs> yeah. All it took yeah. was some Kit Kat bars, I guess. That was yeah. the secret. <laughs> so it, explain to me how, or, or what, what's the strategy behind shooting a, an over under I always just shoot the top one first. Is that what everyone does? And is um, that the right way to do it? I have no idea. It's just asked- personal preference. Whatever you prefer is there's no right or wrong answer with that. Uh, most what do you it, do? Cause that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. We usually <laughs> shoot the bottom barrel first, but really? we're okay. a lot of doubles and um, you know, you can change the chokes out with how tight or, or why do you want your pattern? And then, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it really just comes down to personal preference and in, in trying different things. Yeah. But there's no reason, there's no rhyme or reason as to why you would shoot the bottom one first. No, we're, we're okay. just, just, just personal preference. Yeah. Nothing. Uh-huh. Okay. Interesting. I, I will say this. I was 
you know, everyone called this the woke Olympics. Um, I didn't see as much of that as I thought I would. And I was actually hunting in Africa during a lot of the Olympic games and we're in hunting camp. We didn't have a TV. And so I was really like out of touch with it, but my wife would, um, send me a WhatsApp message in the evenings and they were watching. And I was like, you know, other than the women's soccer team is everyone being respectful. And, uh, and she said, man, it's really been, it's been nice to see our athletes represent our country in a way that would make us proud. Um, some of them I saw, you, you know, bring a tear to your eye. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to say thank you for for representing the United States and and what myself and I know our listeners uh, think is a respectful manner. Um, yeah, it is uh, my honor uh, to do that. And I wouldn't have it any other way. You know, us just being able to step out on that stage and wear, you know, USA on our back or, or represent the good old you know, us, it's a, it's definitely just a lot of hard work to even get there. And we understand the sacrifice that people have done or, or put before us so that we even have that opportunity. So mm-hmm. I will always stand in the stand for the flag. <laughs> Last question. If you were going dove hunting with me, how many shells would you take in your shell bag? Cause the <laughs> limit's 15. So would you only have 15? You know, I'd probably give myself like 20 just in case, you know, you never want to run out. <laughs> we do miss occasionally, but uh, yeah, I, I'd give myself like, I'm, you know, I'm probably being boxed just to be safe. I'd give myself like 50 or 60. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, maybe some of that could rub off on me, but um, yeah. yeah, I certainly appreciate your time. Thanks again for your service to our country and for um, your achievements in Tokyo. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, good luck hunting. It looks like you got some cool mounts back there. Lots of fun memories. Thanks again, Amber. Thanks. You too. So there she goes. All-American sweetheart, first lieutenant, gold medalist, Amber English of the United States Army. What a treat visiting with her today. That segment, by the way, brought to you by our brand new apparel company, Numa Outdoors. Here's a cool thing. You'll save 20% off anything you buy at Numa outdoors.com that's base layers mid layers outer layers jackets vests pants bibs shirts and tops gloves and hats even their packs and bags plus accessories that's 20 percent off when you use my promo code lone star 20 at checkout take advantage of it that's 20 percent off when you check out at numaoutdoors.com unfortunately we gotta go gotta get out of here flat out of time Thanks to Amber once again, as well as our other guest today, Owen Fitzsimmons of Texas Parks and Wildlife. We'll do it again with a brand new show next week. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Until then, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. Body's broken and bone shattered, blood and dust in your mouth. Getting weary, but you're running with the few in the crowd. Sometimes you wonder why you went. You never wonder what you stayed on for. You've been home for a couple of years now, buddy, but you're still fighting the war.